I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. The question is how digital tech picks and chooses the content that comes to your phones and your brain. Or as Kyle Jacob puts it in a brave new book that I've been waiting for, Filter World, How Algorithms Flattened Culture. What is the chance that devices that know your likes and dislikes better than you do are ever going to surprise you or teach you? More important, Kyle, I think, what's the tilt over time of an information system that's tuned to the smiley face? The joke version is that the algorithm walks into the bar and the bartender asks, what would you like? And of course, the algorithm answers without thinking, I'll have what everyone else is having. You seem to have answered the question why TikTok voices and Instagram faces are so uniform. Why Airbnb is showing what looks like the same room for rent all over the planet. Why pop music is down to one super singer who can fill stadiums all over the earth for an era's tour that could go on forever. We're talking about algorithmic culture in a brave new world. And let's not forget to talk about Aldous Huxley's Brave New World from 1932 crazed, dystopia, scandalous fiction, and we seem to be living in something very like it. Sample the sound of it, what people should hear as algorithmic music, your brain on algorithm culture. What are your favorite examples? What comes to mind when I think of algorithmic culture, maybe first is this YouTube channel called Lo-Fi Chill Hip Hop Beats to Study Slash Relax To. And you can kind of hear it's like, chill drum beats and drum loops, some soft synth music, maybe a few drum brushes or like acoustic sounds. But overall, it's just this like totally lulling, soothing music that you don't need to think about at all. And that's playing 24 hours a day, seven days a week on YouTube. Mm. And I also think of the kind of cliche TikTok influencer voice in which the person on the screen has mm. to pack as many words as possible into as small a space as possible and also not disrupt the flow of information. So they just talk very quickly and very monotone and try to tell you something and keep you listening. And it's just very off-putting. Who decided this is how we were gonna talk on TikTok? It honestly gives me secondhand embarrassment anytime I hear people talk in this cadence. And yes, that is my mother's wedding dress hanging in her entryway. It's her world and we're just living in it. And picture the puffy Aurelé jacket, it's called, or the Amazon jacket. Also, you write about the generic coffee shop look and feel. You refer to it as a Silicon Valley aesthetic. The fascinating thing is you link it instantly to a state of numbness and also anxiety. Yeah, it goes in both directions, I think. Like these algorithmic cultural aesthetics have a way of numbing you and just kind of dulling your senses, but they are also anxiety inducing because your mind kind of rebels against that numbness. If there's like a sense of identity loss in this culture, then mm. it forces the question of who you are and what you're actually experiencing. Speak of anxiety, I've been saying for 15 years now, my ambition is to get off the grid and I had no idea what I was talking about. But you've written the book that at least confirms that the grid is real. Yeah, there is this network of algorithmic feeds and digital platforms that the internet is made up of. But I think something that's changed in the past decade is that digital experience is not just staying online. It's not just what happens when we look at a screen, mm. but it's really influencing 
all the decisions we make in our lives, whether it's what restaurant we go to, what books we read, what kind of cafe mm. we go to, what we wear, kind of every bit of culture and every bit of consumption is mediated through these algorithmic feeds and recommendations. And I think that's why it feels so inescapable. Like that grid really is all around us and we mm. are kind of always participating in it, feeding back to it, being influenced by it. So I totally get that sense of just wanting to totally pull back and like separate yourself, even though that can be really difficult. Does it have a mood? Does it have a an emotion? Would you call it depressed? Would you call it anesthetized? <laughs> Would you call it averaged? Yeah, I think it's there's an anesthetized sense to this because the incentive for digital platforms and algorithmic feeds is to stimulate your senses but not shock you or dismay you or challenge you but just keep you in this level of like perfect stimulation that means that you'll keep engaging keep tuning in keep feeling mm. something but not feeling very much so i do feel like it's this kind of pleasant numb thoughtlessness that's not disruptive like you're not disgusted by the music on Spotify. You're not made angry by it. You're also not feeling a strong emotion. You're not being moved mm -hmm. by great art. You're just kind of being stimulated. The algorithm being a formula that's derived from billions of requests for a reaction. Yes. Like, dislike, don't. Yeah. The structure of an algorithmic feed, let's say, it's a formula of a bunch of variables that the tank company measures at every second. So that's like how many people are clicking on something, how many people are reposting it or sharing it, how long are people listening to a song or watching a video. And all of the data from all the billion users on Facebook are fed into that system and then used to kind of predict what each different user might be likely to do. Big questions that we've got to get to before we're done. Is it a permanent lock on our culture, our brains, one by one? Is it the end of the crooked timber of our humanity, our selves, our individual selves, secret selves, as our social selves? I think it has sanded off a lot of these corners of culture and has like made us less likely to experience something internally by ourselves and like feel something from a piece of art without comparing it to everyone else. So in that way, I think the total public nature of these feeds and the public nature of the internet and culture on the internet deadens like that inner self or like mm. deadens that secret self just because what you're thinking about is not necessarily do I like this thing? What does it make me feel? Instead, you're thinking about how many thousands of other people have already liked this? How much attention is it getting? What is its public footprint? Kyle you write at some point that the dragnet is inescapable. But before we shoot ourselves, you've also written in The Current New Yorker a wonderful piece on how you cleansed yourself. And I want you to tell us that story. At a certain point, particularly after the pandemic, I was just really online. <laughs> like I, I found myself being online at all hours of the day, constantly consuming these algorithmic feeds on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. And I just felt completely overwhelmed by them. Like, I think I felt that sense of identity loss that I had been swept away by the internet. And, and a kind of addiction too, maybe? Oh, for sure. I was addicted to the infinite feed of information. Like, I could always find something new and different, and it would always be recommended to me based on my own taste. So what I decided to do was to just see who I was without all of that influence. 
and cut it all out of my life for three and a half months, I think. Which sounds like no big deal, except my whole life was online in a mm. way. My work was online. My friends were online. My like cultural consumption was also online. So it marked a big shift in how I moved through the world. And it forced me to look for other ways to consume things. And you came out of it alive. I mean, here you are. Well, writing, Broke reading, in the thinking. Addiction. Yeah, I mean, I think it helped me clear my mental infrastructure in a way. Mm. Like it the lack of constant stimulus and the ability to separate myself from that whole ecosystem was right. really important. I think I had this subconscious perception that I had to be on the internet, that I had to be consuming all of this information all the time. And it wasn't actually true. Like that addiction to all that stimulus was not actually serving me. It wasn't giving me perhaps the most fascinating things I could find. And it was just making my psychology <laughs> too reliant on all of this material. How did you answer the question that so many people have spoken to you, which was, how do I know that what I like is really what I like? It's such a good question, and I get it from more and more people. Like, I think there's this huge anxiety that the internet and algorithmic feeds are warping our desires and our preferences they're kind of telling us what to like right. rather than just serving us what we organically like. And I think my advice is just to allow yourself to feel something from a piece of music or a work of art hmm. or a book and to kind of separate its public perception and its footprint on the internet from how you actually feel in that moment of interacting with it. Hmm. So, I mean, you know, a lot of people buy clothing on Instagram because they're bombarded with advertising for it and they buy the new puffer coat or, you know, leggings as one woman. Or underwear. Um, yeah, literally everything is on Instagram now. But that's like Instagram showing you what your preference should be. I would hope that you would go and try something on yourself or like look for something that doesn't match the aesthetics of Instagram, that doesn't fit within these pre Did you find products. who you are? What is your aesthetic? What is your cultural <laughs> zone, your era? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it made me think more about that sense of, okay, what what's truly resonating with me? And that's not always the answer that you expect. So I think during that time when I was really off all of these feeds, what I ended up getting really into was samba music. Interesting. For, which I had never given a thought to before, yeah. really. Uh, like maybe I had heard a few songs and I liked it, but I just really went down that rabbit hole intentionally and did the work of researching musicians and looking at historical periods of this music. And I just got really into it and enjoyed it so much more because it wasn't what was popular in that moment, because it wasn't what was like floating at the top of the feed. It was just my own personal experience. I'd like to ask people now, what is your ideal cultural period? 18th century England or Chicago, Kansas City, 1935, with the basic band or whatnot, I think I know what I like. And I like both jazz and Brahms and Henry James. Yeah. But I never had to consult the algorithm about it at all. <laughs> then how, how do you develop that preference? Like for you, what forms those preferences? These are really critical questions. Parents, examples, people who, who get great happiness out of art. That's a big thing. But then... Do I want to hear it again? Do I want to hear the Ellington Band? Yes. My rule had been that the music you like and maybe dance to or are taught at age 13 becomes the music of your life, uncritically. But now I think, no, 
there's something real there. Um, yeah. And I feel very blessed by the culture that I was introduced to as a kid. But I hope we like keep that plasticity in a way or cultivate it more. Like we do imprint on what we love as a teenager and that's a critical moment for our tastes and preferences. That's what we identify with in a really deep way. But I think you can keep that ability to like bring something new into your mind and like have it strike you and, and reform your identity if you let it. Like if you seek something challenging or weird out or if you try to experience something without a preconceived notion of, of what it is or should be, maybe we can have those experiences again. Kalcheka, I want to go through the history of all of this because we've been through these crises of technology and culture. Socrates didn't believe that anything should be written down. <laughs> Writing was an impediment to memory and thinking, not to mention conversation. But it goes into the modern world. People have wondered about what's happening with popular culture. Philip Roth, the novelist, said to me that in the early 1950s, it must have been, his guess was the final score would be University of Chicago 22, pop culture 7. He was kidding, <laughs> of course. But then television took over, denounced as the idiot box for killing off books, ruling a vast wasteland, as Newton Minow said. But then rock and roll flattened another whole swath of culture in the 50s, killing off the Great American Songbook, that sort of thing. MTV killed off the radio stars. You had to have video or you died. And then cable television killed the magic of TV. 57 channels and nothing on, Bruce Springsteen said. Speak of how this cloud of internet manipulation by algorithm is different, maybe worse or maybe just the same old thing. Yeah, we go through these cyclical crises, I think, like every time we encounter a new technology or even a new form of culture, like a, a rock and roll, there is this sense from some people that, okay, now culture is over. Like right. this new thing has made it so banal that it's no longer worthwhile and it's been denigrated and degraded, like Socrates said of the written word destroying language, which obviously it didn't. And I think culture always survives in a way. Like there's still the human... In a way, yeah, that's a key question. <laughs> yes, it can be easier or harder. The human urge to create never goes away. But I think what we're facing right now is just that the sheer scale and speed and volume of these algorithmic feeds and of the digital platforms that we exist on, that's different from television, from radio, from the camera. I think what the difference is, is that we're also tied up in these filters. They really direct not just what we experience, but how we experience them. Yep. That it leads us toward, I mean, I, I use the word filter worlds as the title of the book because I wanted to evoke this like impenetrable bubble that surrounds us, yep. that affects every decision we make, every piece of culture we consume, where we look, what we appreciate. So to me, that immersiveness of the technology and its granular impact of really affecting everything at once, like that to me is a different problem than these other forms of technology. The decline of reading and writing, reading especially, are real things though, and they are the essence of the inherited culture. No? I mean, that worries me. The destruction of reading. Well, or... yeah, the breaking of that habit. Yeah, yeah. Even think... of old-fashioned things like reading aloud to each other, to children. 
spending a weekend with a book. Yeah, I think the internet's promised to always deliver us new stuff and just a flood of novel and superficial and ephemeral things has lessened our ability to deeply engage with one thing at a time. Rather than sitting down with a book, you're on your TikTok feed, which just yep. leaves you with nothing. Like you can spend an hour on TikTok and leave just feeling empty, essentially. Whereas if you read a novel for an hour, you've at least like communed with another human's consciousness and like experienced a piece of art. And you leave that experience feeling, I mean, hopefully feeling something, maybe feeling creatively inspired, maybe feeling a sense of sympathy or the universality of human experience, or it might yep. make you feel annoyed and angry because maybe that piece of art provokes you in some way. But all of those emotions are more valuable than the kind of numbness, I think, that comes from just passively consuming a feed of content. In my own lifetime and yours, it's amazing how creative individualism survived in various ways on the margins in jazz, in rap, in 70s filmmaking around people like Robert Altman, Scorsese, the couple of Godfather movies, then prestige television into the new century. I mean, West Wing, The Wire. But I finished your book, Kyle, thinking that algorithmic culture could very well crush almost every bit of individual original flavor and sound in every art before it gets to us. Right, this is the key here, is that it's shaping the things that get made even before you have a chance to consume them or think about them. And I think the kind of art that these systems reward is the kind that gets engagement immediately. It's the kind of thing you hit the like button or the thumbs up button on. It's the song you don't skip on Spotify that just like washes over you. And I think that's not the quality of the great culture that we admire from the past century or more. Right. The culture that we value actually is most often from these outside original voices that don't start with a huge audience. Yes. It's not a kind of like democracy of likes when a Fellini film gets made or early Scorsese or Robert Altman. A punk movement, a, a no wave, like these artistic movements started with a small group of people making something that not many people liked yes. and they did it anyway and we hear it now 50 75 whatever years later and it's gorgeous yeah it takes time to appreciate these things like time is one thing that algorithmic feeds take away as well like they take away that yeah sense of having patience and sitting with something and allowing something to develop because in a feed, if you don't get the likes right away, if you don't get the attention immediately, you kind of get swept away very quickly. So you mm -hmm. don't have a chance to slowly earn that audience. You don't have a chance to convert people in a way to your new idea. Have you seen this new movie, Oscar contender, called American Fiction? <laughs> I haven't seen I, it I loved it. It's a tragic comedy about a black writer dumbing down his language to match white cliches of ghetto life. And it's wildly successful, to his own disgust and dismay. <laughs> he says the worse he writes, the more books he sells. Yeah, he has like molded his work to the expectations of the public and to the kinds of like stereotypes that he hates. Exactly. But he knows works for a lot of people. Yeah. And that's the kind of same process I think that artists go through with these platforms is that they see what works. They're confronted with what's successful at every second. 
And there's a real temptation to just make your art what works. Like, of course, there's money in it. Yes. I mean, you have to, for an art career to be sustainable, you have to make money in some way. And the way you make money these days is by cultivating an audience online. So you have to work to cultivate the audience to make money off of them. Otherwise, you may not survive. Mm. Like your art may not be sustainable. And that forces you to comply with the feeds. And I mean, I, I describe in the book, too, this phrase content capital, which describes the ability of one piece of culture or a person to generate more content around their practice. Influencing. Influencing. So a painter makes a painting, but they also take selfies in their studio or post photos of their vacation or talk about their outfit of the day. And these are all like ancillary Mm. forms of content that are not the art itself. And yet they succeed online. So there's this pressure to do all of the other things that aren't the art Mm -hmm. to sustain the art. But then those other things crowd out the actual creative process that's supposed to be the priority. Kyle Chaco, what does taste have to do with it? I mean, algorithmic culture is a kind of substitute taste or it's an authoritative billions averaged opinions taste, which it's hard to admire. But we grew up in the notion that there was no accounting for taste. You can't argue about taste. But what do you think in the end? Does the algorithm know better or is it a terrible substitution? Well, now I think we have outsourced taste in a way. Like that phrase, there's no accounting for taste, in a way respected your personal preference. It says that this person may have preferences that I don't understand, but that's still their desire. It honors the individual and the democracy in a way. Yeah, the algorithmic feed or the equation doesn't say that. It just says, okay, the more people like something, the better. And the more people like something, the more people should like it. It's just like an endless scalability or acceleration of the most average stuff. So I think we've given over that responsibility for cultivating our personal taste and knowing our own desires to these feeds that just kind of reflect our own actions back at us. And in a way it works. I mean, the TikTok feed will suggest things that might interest you. Mm. One strange thing that came up on my TikTok feed was videos of people retiling showers. And it was just a strange, like Mm. I never thought of it. It's an interesting kind of mechanical process. And I engaged with it. And so TikTok served me more and more and more shower tiling videos. What is a shower tile video? It's like, (laughs) imagine a bathroom renovation (laughs) and you've taken out, you know, the shell of the tub or of the the shower. And then you're left with the bare wall. And then you need to kind of put on the spackling sticky stuff and then lay the tiles one by one and then grout the tiles and seal them and stuff. Like it's an interestingly material process that I enjoyed watching. But at the same time, I don't think that's my taste or like my enjoyment of that thing is is to no end. It's just sensory stimulus. This is full like plumber kind of home renovation style stuff. This is the hidden contractor within, right? Yes, exactly. It illuminates something that might click with your brain in a way. But I think we mistake that for tastes we mistake what just what we react to what we like numbly consume for a deeper sense of personal taste i mean taste is things you identify with things that are like at the heart of your being that really move you push you in a new direction but these things don't do that like i'm not moved by my shower tiling videos to me the other dimension though is time a preference and enjoyment pleasure admiration of an artist 
that lasts 20, 50, mm-hmm. a lifetime, that tells you something important. Yeah, a lifelong engagement with an artist's work or with a body oh, of culture. I remember the music of my childhood, and it means the world more now than then. Yeah, that durability and permanence, in a way, is also something that's swept away by this ecosystem because it always prioritizes the new thing, the most recently posted, the new trend that's happening this week as opposed to last week. So I'm curious when, you know, as all of us younger users of the internet age out of it or this era ends, how much will we identify with what we were consuming right now? Mm-hmm. Like, will we find that it affected us? And I, I think it might not. <laughs> Kyle Chaco, what does the algorithm know about our taste for news and politics? To me, this is a big question. Do we fix on trivia in you know, potholes, or do we train ourselves to think about the survival of the planet? In our politics, it strikes me, one thing, there's a monopolistic impulse through all of this algorithmic recommending, and in our politics, it shows up as Trump. In many, many ways, you could say it's pro-Trump and anti-Trump. We don't know quite what Trump is, love him or hate him, but that's the point. Yeah, I think these feeds and the, the platforms drive us toward one thing. Like I imagine them often as giant funnels where they take this diverse widespread group of people and minds and then funnel us all toward one solution or one piece of content that compels us. I mean, it's terrifying to think that Donald Trump is that one piece of content. What brings us all together about him and the idea of him is that we have a strong reaction. Like either it's a pro-reaction or right. it's an anti-reaction. Nevertheless, you just can't escape the gravity of that one thing that everyone is orbiting around. Yeah, funny segue, but Taylor Swift, it seems to me, is the monoculture in our music. Yeah. And I have kids and grandkids who love Taylor Swift, which is not my point. The question is, what did it take besides talent to become this one-woman monopoly, not just a billionaire, but a universal superstar, literally all over the world, without a rival, without a close second in the realm of pop singing, except possibly Beyonce. Yeah, I like that word monopolistic because it reflects how they kind of demand our attention. Our attention is kind of moved toward these people. I mean, it's a kind of generic quality. To me, what algorithmic feeds prioritize and what Silicon Valley prioritizes is this idea of scalability. Scalability means one answer for all people. It means a system that can expand from working for 10 people to working for a billion people with no sweat and no friction. Right. And so the art and culture that succeeds in this system is also scalable. Like Taylor Swift is kind of an amazing scalable artist because she is one person it's fully contained within her being and yet she makes this music that can draw in hundreds of millions of listeners like her solution works for so many people and we puzzle is it the music is it her lyrics is it herself Mm. is it her psychology the notion of eras and accepting yourself in all (laughs) forms i mean there's something very deep there but it's also something Almost unchallengeable. I mean, she's so much bigger than Springsteen ever was, or Sinatra, or the Beatles. Something has happened, and I think it's the internet and the algorithm. 
I mean, I think she makes fascinating music and many people are very moved by it in part because she does leverage herself. Like you truly feel like she's putting her soul out there and making authentic art that somehow scales up to this huge level, which is really interesting and powerful. But at the same time, I think the avenues that she moves through, the streaming services, YouTube, the internet itself have helped her get to that place of universality to the point that disliking Taylor Swift is almost not allowed. (laughs) Like, if you are too aggressive in your dislike of her, other people online will notice and will go after you and kind of push you into submission to the mainstream taste. And that's like another form of pressure that you're just not allowed to not like the popular thing. You know, you have a wonderful spin on the, the famous Marshall McLuhan line that the medium is the message. The rule doesn't change. Politics on the radio is different from politics on television or politics mm-hmm. online, etc. But you define the medium in the current case as, and I'm sure you're right, what is the medium today? It is the instant speed of universal human interconnections. That is what makes the message. Yeah, I think that's completely right. Like that's what's truly changed in this situation from the era of cable television. It's that suddenly one action, one new bit of content can spread to literally a billion people faster than ever. We're having Mm. more homogenized, globalized, decentralized in a way experiences because we're all existing on these single platforms. The McLuhan quote, the medium is the message. In our case, the medium is these platforms. The medium is the speed. Yeah, the platform allows for that speed because we're all existing within it. We're all these little particles within the platform and each one can reach each other one almost instantly. And that's, I think, a whole new state of affairs. Mm. It feels completely new. You and your book, Kyle Cheka, give us a lot of cryptic, but some bulletins from a future, so to speak, that we haven't quite seen yet. But for example, you write, the 21st century is oppressed by a crushing sense of finitude and exhaustion. It doesn't feel like the future. It's <laughs> good writing. It sounds dramatic, but I think it's true. Like speaking to a lot of people and thinking about what great cultural thinkers are doing right now, there is this sense of a lack of possibility, like an event horizon in a way that we can't see beyond. Mm. The cultural movements of today don't point towards some new idea of living as like modernist thought did in the 20th century. That was an imagination of the future, a thought that humanity could live in a different way. I don't know any, (laughs) any art form or any cultural thing right now that is truly posing a hopeful future or a different framework to exist in. Mm. It's all just kind of orbiting a few certain themes. And I mean, to me, moving toward a a homogenous average that is enabled by these platforms. And so I think that's depressing (laughs) in a way, like the, the sense that creativity can only go so far, the sense that we can't do something new in a way, we can't imagine a different world is sad. It's not just the internet. It's predatory Western capitalism is depressing and deadening. And the kind of like, to us, like fracturing of a global framework of nations and civilization that we once thought was more whole than it was. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of factors to why that future doesn't feel possible. But 
it certainly feels impossible. Speak the other side of it, not Pollyanna, but you also are a guy who cleansed yourself of this, whatever it is, this yeah. habit, this substance. What is it we need? Is it a vision? Is it maybe a movement? Is it simply a recognition that this is not fun anymore? Recognizing that it's not fun and then deciding to act differently, I think, is really important. To me, like, the the movement or the driving idea maybe is to take back your attention from these platforms that are so global, that are so universal, and instead focus on the specific and the local and the things that are close to yourself. So don't mistake what's universally popular for something that's yourself. Instead, mm -hmm. think about who are you truly connected to? What truly moves you? What experiences build meaning in your life? To me, there's mm -hmm. like an attitude shift there. Instead of being obsessed with what's going viral, essentially. Yeah. Like moving away from that and thinking about, okay, what matters in my moment, what matters in my life, in my space, which is ironically the name of <laughs> a social network, but it's a kind of like community culture and a, a reorientation towards small scale things and meaningful yeah. exchanges. That can always happen. We can always log off. We don't need to have our attention directed by Facebook or Instagram. I'm thinking of it as you speak in terms of music. Music is not the great legacy, it's what people do. And I think one cure for this depression in a way is to make a little music on your own. If it's just singing in the tub, <laughs> um, literally taking yeah. violin lessons or something and realizing that that's what music is first and foremost. It's your impulse to... To create and to, to create express and yourself. hear notes in harmony or otherwise and start again. Mm -hmm. Communal singing, for example, all sorts of things cultivating more DIY everything is kind of a good answer here. I mean, I'm always really inspired by my friend who lives in London, who actually works in social media. She runs a social media account for a, a business, but in her own time, she pursues like spoon whittling classes and mm. figure drawing. And she exactly. walks through London and learns about the history of buildings and how the city came to be what it is. She's really, really good at focusing on the local and the meaningful in a way that I find really inspiring because I admittedly am very distracted by what's popular online at a given second. Would it take a movement sooner or later? I think of the slow food movement, actually, which was this yep. you know movement in, that started in Italy in, I think, the 80s or 90s that just refocused people's attention on where food was coming from, thinking about the farmer, thinking about the land, thinking about the whole supply chain of how the food gets to the restaurant. And I think we could have a similar movement for a culture. Like the slow food movement is, no one's offended by it. Right. Like it's not a revolutionary dramatic force or something. It's just a change in how we consume things. It's a change in what we prioritize. And so I think you could do the same thing for a lot of cultural forms when you start thinking about how am I connecting to the artist? How am I supporting the artist making their work? And how am I participating in whatever art form that I'm looking at? Like in the DIY sense, if you like a musician, I don't know, maybe you try to play some of their music. Exactly. You learn a song on the guitar. You learn how to program drum loops. 
I w- would love to do more research on this, but my sense is that in the 19th century, making music at home was much more common because there was no recorded music. Yeah. So how a piece of music got popular was that a lot of people would buy the sheet music in stores and then perform it at home. Yeah. That's like unthinkable now. <laughs> that is totally not what we do. We consume the thing that we, the product, we hear the music on the radio, uh, we look at a painting in a museum, you know, we, we go and consume something rather than participating in the process ourselves. And it might be nice to return to that, to return to making the culture together. Say it's possible. I remember singing, should be coming around the mountain, around the piano with <laughs> my mother's not expert playing and six kids all joining in. That was our introduction to music. Really? And that feels very healthy (laughs) in a way. Like that feels like it builds our enjoyment of art and builds appreciation. One thing that I did recently with this friend in London actually was we played over Christmas some games of Exquisite Corpse, which Mm. is this surrealist drawing activity where you divide a piece of paper into four sections and you all draw a figure together, but no one person can see the other sections. So it becomes this surreal collision of body parts and <laughs> mishmash stuff. And it was just a way of like making our own art at home and pursuing creativity without a thought of what is this going to do online or will this go into a museum? It was just to enjoy it. Sounds like fun. There's anxiety in this algorithmic world, but there's also a lot of contentment, I think. People saying, well, I'm hearing the music I like and I'm sort of in control everything's okay. What do you say to them? Yeah, the it's not a problem necessarily. Like, it's not a problem that you find nice music on Spotify. It's cool that you can get recommended interesting videos that you don't know about on YouTube. The problem comes in when that's the only way you can consume things. It's kind of mm-hmm. the only method of expanding your taste. So if you're just following the Spotify algorithmic recommendations, you're not going to end up in a very satisfying environment. Like some people are very satisfied. They find interesting stuff. They get a lot of material. There's no end of content. But I also feel this dawning sense of ennui and boredom with what gets delivered. I think in part because this system is now, you know, going on a decade old perhaps it just like doesn't work in the way that it used to, or it it had a a time horizon at which point it stops working. Like the machine, Mm. the machine crumbles or we've reached the limits of its novelty in a way similar to generative AI. A reason that I'm optimistic is that people are so bored. (laughs) Like they feel within themselves dissatisfaction and like a need to find something else. And that makes me hopeful that, just by acting in a different way, like all of us might break this down. In algorithmic culture, Kyle, distinctions between highbrow and lowbrow are lost pretty well, and they would be considered anti-democratic if we brought them back. What have we lost? I think the internet does erase those distinctions because everything can be experienced in its own right. When you're consuming through these platforms, context is often erased the history or the tastes or preferences that surround a certain thing go away. You don't know what other people are thinking necessarily. You don't know how something, the symbolic valence of something in its own time. And in a way that can be freeing, like you can just experience what's in front of you. You can 
Yeah. I can be the 12 year old online and come across a Bill Evans trio Sweden yep. video from 1972 and just be utterly blown away. Absolutely. Not knowing that it might be considered pretentious or highbrow or whatever, just experiencing the great abstraction of that music. That's kind of cool. I'm not sure of the utility of highbrow and lowbrow now. I, I agree entirely. The wonderful thing is to let these things breathe anew. Yeah. Not everybody's yeah. going to like them, but but greatness is just bursting out of there. Right. It gives you access to that experience in a different way. And I mean, now I think rather than highbrow, lowbrow, we just have popular or obscure. So we have things that have a larger audience and things that have a smaller audience or niche, like niche versus right. popular. And so on one <clears throat> level, you have a Taylor Swift who is popular with millions or a billion listeners. And on the other side, you have a niche thing, like a new classical composer who makes dissonance string trio works or whatever. <laughs> and so the difference now is like Taylor Swift has a billion followers. This composer has a thousand or 300. I think that's the kind of separation that we're making now is it's not based on pretentiousness or elitism it's just based on audience it's like the metric of eyeballs yep. or ears and that's all that matters everything always reminds me of james joyce supposedly saying he didn't really care whether a million people read ulysses or one person read it a million times <laughs> the <laughs> yeah. book is there yeah or the the velvet underground line that their first album only had a thousand people listen to it but every one of them started a band <laughs> like i find that the internet and algorithmic feeds doesn't prioritize that kind of culture that reaches a small audience but really empowers it and really inspires it kyle Chekov, thank you so much Dare I say, down with algorithmic culture. <laughs> yes, this is really fun. Thank you. Kyle Cheka writes about digital media and culture at The New Yorker magazine. His new book is Filter World, How Algorithms Flattened Culture. Here at Open Source, we depend on listener support. If you haven't done your part yet, seize the moment. Visit radioopensource.org slash donate and pitch in to keep the world's first and longest running podcast going strong. Open Source is proud to be a member of Hub and Spoke, a Boston-based collective of independent, creator-owned podcasts. Our shows range from politics to art to history to technology. We come together around the principle that independent voices are more important now than ever. You can learn more at hubspokeaudio.org. 